0: find a way, Idil Elveriş presents.
1: In this episode of We Can Find a Way, I will be talking to Joe Barry. Welcome back to another program of We Can Find a Way. This is a podcast about conflict resolution and my name is Idil Elveriş. I'm a mediator based in London and Istanbul. Since I moved to London more than three years ago, I had the time and opportunity to discover even more about Conflict Resolution, which I cover in this podcast in different episodes. This is a bilingual podcast, as you know, which may create some confusion for different listeners, but there will be more and more episodes in English. I now have put them even in a separate playlist. So please follow or write a review. This helps the podcast to be found easily in search engines. In this episode of We Can Find A Way, I am talking to Joe Berry, who is an amazingly inspiring speaker, and she works to resolve conflict around the world. Her story is pretty incredible, 16 years after her father, who was a Conservative Party MP, was killed by an IRA bomb, Joe met with the man responsible, whose name was Patrick McGee. I was so amazed by this story. In February, I went to the Grand Hotel in Brighton, where this event took place, just to see how the hotel looked today and whether there was a commemoration, etc. in the hotel. I sat down, had a cup of coffee, and tried to imagine the... atmosphere then. I couldn't, of course. But what is pretty amazing is she and Patrick McGee talked on many occasions about how their relationship has started after the Good Friday agreement and their initial meeting after McGee was released from prison let them speak over 300 occasions on a shared platform around the world. So I tried to ask Joe about the conditions that made such an encounter possible, country-wise, process-wise, but also personally, because I felt she has already talked about other aspects on numerous occasions. Jo also established a charity, Building Bridges for Peace and Advocates empathy and seeing the humanity in the other. She has given talks and workshops in areas around the world including Rwanda, Lebanon, India, South Korea, Palestine and Israel as well as throughout the UK. She also developed workshops in schools with youth groups on topics of conflict transformation, storytelling, becoming positive change makers and challenging violent extremism. So we can now move to our interview that took place on 25th of April 2022. Hello Joe Berry and thanks for being with me today. Hi, so great to be with you. Thank you. What do you think are the conditions that made an encounter with you and Patrick
0: McGee a possibility in this country? Well, great question. I met him after we had our peace process, he was in prison serving several life sentences. And then with the peace process, he was released. It was part of the peace process that all the political prisoners came out. I found out that when he came out of prison, he was committed to the peace process. So not everyone was. Some people still felt the battle was on. So I did my own risk assessment and decided that I'd be safe. I don't think he would have had me come to the prison because when he was in the prison, he was still motivated to be part of the IRA and it wouldn't have been appropriate. It was appropriate when he came out of prison, left the IRA... And then he was committed to repairing the past, he thought, sitting with former enemies and being part of a reconciliation process. So I did my own risk assessment and that seemed good enough. And then I was doing my own preparation. So normally something like this, we call it restorative process, whatever. There would be someone there as a facilitator to take part in lots of preparation and they'd meet with both parties, would take, could be over a year. But there was no one at that time who wanted to take me on. Like, I did try, but no, because I think it was too huge. It was too soon after the peace process. You know, he was seen as a notorious terrorist. You know, he almost killed the government, so no one wanted to touch it. And maybe they were worried for me, maybe they were worried for him. So I had to do my own work on this. I couldn't have met him if I hadn't already met some other people who were from the IRA. So it wasn't a conscious thing. I didn't decide I have to do this and this and this. It was just what happened. And looking back, it was essential that I'd met other men in the IRA first. Otherwise, the step would have been too great. How did you meet the other people in the IRA? It was part of a programme I was on, a reconciliation, support for victims. And so this was actually in the Republic of Ireland, a place called Glencree Reconciliation Centre. And I was going there to get support and meeting other people being affected by the conflict. And one of the weekends was to meet ex-prisoners. Now, a lot of people didn't want to go, but I was like, oh yes, <laughs> you know, I, I really need to do this. You know, I remember being there this weekend, there were four men who were long-time IRO. And it wasn't that I needed to argue with them or talk to them about the conflict. I just wanted to feel them as human beings, humanize them in a way they couldn't get rid of me because wherever they went, I was like, can I come too? And we went for walks in the hills <laughs> There was a group of us that stayed up all night, which is sort of what happened there anyway. You know, it was in the the bantering, the joking, the just being light that actually really helped me. But I did, after that weekend, hit quite a big sense of betrayal. And I think betrayal is a big part of this process. When we meet someone who could be an enemy or was an enemy or is part of a group that's killed a loved one, it's natural, I feel, to go through a betrayal. I'm still trying to understand exactly what betrayal is, but betrayal keeps us with our tribe, with our group, and stops us from building that bridge or rehumanizing those that we would have dehumanized or those that would be our enemy or our other. And it's natural to feel betrayal. And the betrayal voice in me wanted me to stop, you know, and go, no, you know, this isn't okay. You know, you mustn't do this work. So I had to find a way to make peace with that part of me that was i think protecting me really that i called my betrayal protecting
1: you from feeling that they were really humans as well or
0: yeah because what happens if we discover that they're really humans i mean that's massive when i discovered that i cried because like what's it all been about then why have we been fighting because actually we are all connected they can be my brothers and sisters and that was hard but also vital and important. So if I hadn't felt that betrayal, then it may have been a huge obstacle when I first met Patrick McGee. For me, it's an emotional journey. It's not an intellectual journey. I mean, it's partly, but it's much more emotional. And I've had to grow through it. This isn't something that an academic exercise you can learn at university. (laughs) Like This touches all my being. And therefore, there are inner obstacles. And the betrayal was such a big one, you know, and I could understand anyone meeting that betrayal and then going, I'm not going to betray my loved one by meeting that person. Like I'd really understand that. No situation is the same. This isn't the conditions for everyone. This is the conditions for me. Yeah. Other people would be different. Yeah. I give you an example, I have a friend in Rwanda who lost 35 members of his family in the genocide. And he wanted to meet a man who killed his mum and others. So and He wanted to know from me a few things. And in the end, I said, if he feels it inside himself, that he needs to do it from that deep place of knowing, then I'm here for you, you do it. He went to meet him in prison because that was where he was. He wasn't coming out of prison. He had to tell all his family that were alive or his community because it's a small village. And like I didn't tell anyone. I had that luxury of not carrying everyone with me. He had to. And then when he got there, he actually found out details of where his loved ones were buried. And that's what he needed to know. You know, that's a very different situation. But this is why there are no rules in this game. You know, there's no in this way of reconciling because it's quite new. There's people who can support us in the process. so And that's one of the things that I do. I support other people in the process. You know, it has to come from that that urge, that deep passion inside ourselves, and we have to find our way. There may not be a peace process, you know, and maybe they're in prison. You know, maybe we have to meet a proxy, like someone who represents that group because it was a, a suicide bomber or, you know, it may be we don't know who killed our loved ones. You know, there's just so many variants in, in this and therefore there is not one right way. So every country has to
1: fight their own demons, I guess. You said you have walked alone. It was your decision. So what does the British government or the Conservative Party that your father was a member of think about your initiative?
0: I don't know. I mean, we're talking about now 21 years ago. At that time, certainly, I don't think they have been very supportive. I did get some letters from one MP who was very angry. It's fine. You know, it's understandable. But things have changed since then. I'm not in touch with people so that I would know. But I certainly haven't done this to be liked and I've had death threats and angry people and I've been accused of all sorts of things you know and that's fine you know I'm never going to argue with anyone about this I understand for a lot of people this is a step too far and that's fine I'm just thinking okay we can't change the past how can we change the future I'm doing my own experiment because of the impact of the work that I do and what I've done I feel it's worked but I'm not ever going to persuade anyone else. You know, that's not who I am.
1: When I listen to your programs with McGee via Zoom or other YouTube programs, you often mention being scared, you know, with appearing with him, meeting him, you know, your heart beating, etc. Yet you have been able to overcome it and have done it like over the past, like hundreds of times. So how did you fight your own fear? How was this possible?
0: I mean, the fear is not so much there anymore. I mean, occasionally, but it's certainly the first time I was terrified. I thought it was a one-off meeting. It never occurred to me we were going to carry on and and we'd be in touch 21 years later. So I think at the time I was already finding a way to be with my emotions. So I was acknowledging my emotions Mm -hmm. and recognizing, but also a stronger voice going, I've got this. I need to do this despite it being difficult, how would I be feeling just happy about this? This is huge. You know, This is a scary thing to do, but I need to do it for my own healing. And so that inner sense of I need to do this was stronger than the emotion. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. So I was giving myself support. And I do that all the time. You oh. know, I have conversations. I have like a very vivid internal world and where I, I'm aware of my emotions and my thoughts and I'm acknowledging them and listening to myself. And that's really important. When I met Patrick for the first time, I was completely present to him, which enabled him to then say that he was disarmed by my empathy. And the way I did that was that I was conscious of everything that was happening inside myself. So that's the self-awareness that was there. I had some very unusual thoughts. I was being with them and I was noticing my emotions and and I kept it up for three hours and then I couldn't do it anymore. So that's when I, I left. So I acknowledge my emotions, even just saying to myself, I'm being really scared and then, and then telling myself, but I've got this, you know, I am safe. I am okay. is really helpful. Just like someone might say to you, you know, oh, you're scared. And that sort of helps calm you down. I give myself those messages. And also I've learned about positive affirming messages. So when I'm out of my depth, which I can be, I tell myself, I got this, Joe, you know, I'm doing well. So I give myself those strokes and positive messages, which really help. Also, what do I need right now is a really important question I ask Mm -hmm. myself in order to feel better. And then that gives myself the power. And quite often we give our power away and we get other people to tell us what we need. But I'm all about, we know what we need. So I ask myself, I need to ring a friend and just have a safe space. Maybe I need to go for a walk in nature. Nature is very important to me.
1: Did you tell McGee that... You know, we have met now like three hours. It's getting too much. I need to go. Or I guess you put it in a much more smoother and nicer way. Because I'm just feeling when the internal feelings are coming up and boiling, sometimes there is a danger that you might split something that you don't want yeah. to say.
0: No, I think I just, in fact, I was late. I was meant to be somewhere else. So I think I just said, you know, thank you. I need to go. And that's when he said to me he was really sorry he killed my dad. And I didn't need an apology to me it's not about an apology but that was when I I really knew that he's seen my dad as a human being and he demonized my dad that's how he could plant a bomb that's how people can kill they don't see people as human beings they've demonized them but he's now rehumanizing my dad so that did mean a lot to me I think he also said that he could sit
1: down and have a cup of tea with him
0: Yes but instead they were representing different sides and they weren't listening to each other and that's the nature of conflict. Do you sometimes think what your father would have thought about this? I do get asked. I'm sure he would understand because he always wants to understand me because I was always a little bit different. For him, politics was a way to create change. And he said to me, I want to create peace by my politics. Now, that was never my way of creating peace because I've never voted for his party. But I accept that was what he wanted to do. And so he'd understand this is my way now of creating peace.
1: What would your advice or recommendation be To the people of Turkey, we had a peace process, but it failed. There will be another one, probably, because there has to be at some point if we want to resolve this issue.
0: So what was the main reason it failed, do you think? We don't really know enough about
1: it. Different expectations, not inclusion of society, maybe preparing Mm. the society. The people, especially after such a conflict in longevity, to make compromises, etc.
0: Yeah, well, the big one I heard was that not involving the people, not preparing them. I was actually with a group in Switzerland and at a conference, and there was a group there from Turkey, came from Kurds and non-Kurds, and they were working together, young people, and some of them had inherited a sense of trauma, and you know, some of them experienced it. The way to move on is to create safe spaces, I believe, to share stories and to hear each other and to humanize each other on a grassroots level. When there's been so much trauma and suffering, it takes a long time to heal. So there needs to be individual work to heal the trauma. And that's massive. And even in Northern Ireland, where there's been a lot of resources, there's still a lot of trauma that's never been addressed. And a trauma's not healed. I believe it passes down. To the next generation and then the next generation. It takes a long time to heal. So first of all, to address the personal trauma and then to create safe spaces where people can come and share their stories, where people can come and listen. Because I think rehumanizing happens when we hear someone's story and they're telling it from, I went through this, this member of my family went through this, and I felt this, and it's very real from the heart. And then that makes connections and builds empathy. And then even if people have been on opposing sides, they can go, you know, I've experienced this. And so there's that immediately we are human and there's a connection. That's a very powerful way. And there's many different ways of creating safe spaces for storytelling. There are people doing programs and, you know, it's now, I think it's been developed around the world and I've seen it work. I've really seen it work where former enemies have come together and then made that connection. Part of the healing is to see each other as human beings again. It has to be done in a very safe way. There'll be many different needs on all the different positions and sides. You know, it's really hard. What is justice? Memorial days, compensation. There's so many issues. They all need to be addressed in the peace process. You know, peace process is also about how you move on, taking into account the needs. So the peace process can be a massive way of listening to everyone and then collating that information and so people feel heard and listened to and, and somehow they're supported. I'm not an expert on peace process, but I imagine those that work are ones that have done a lot of listening. They're not just experts coming in to create a peace process that day, but they've got an infrastructure of how we move on with everyone. The longer the conflict, the harder, the longer it's going to take to heal, obviously. Right. And then the the individual trauma work for people, not just straight counselling. I don't think that does it. Maybe for some people, but for more, people need a deeper work because trauma is stored in the body. There's a lot of work to do to heal, which is why, you know, we have to stop killing each other. Because when we do, like, it takes a second to kill someone. But the legacy, what it leaves, takes generations to heal. You know, that's very idealistic, but that's the only way to address this, is to get to the root of why it happens and, and change it, which is what my work is about. But this is a long-term vision. I'm not going to say it in my lifetime. <laughs> Obviously, things aren't great at the moment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, which brings us to the last question. I guess if I understand all you are saying correctly, you're working rather not with governments or states, but you believe your politics, if I may, is more about the people, humans talking to each other. So as the last question, how do you think the people of Ukraine and Russia
0: can make peace at some point? Or... First of all, my question is, could this have been avoided? And I feel that's a shared responsibility. Were there red flags? Were there things that, if there'd been interventions, could we have actually stopped what's happening now happening? And I think there are lessons to be learned. Um, I would love to work with governments. It's just that they aren't inviting me. Because it's not just me, but I think there are many people who are mediators, who are peace builders, who understand a lot about conflict and why it happens. Their type of thinking was more in the way the politicians think. I think we'd have a much safer, more peaceful world, but they're not the ones in charge because I think a lot of people could have predicted this. You know, And we have to separate the person from their actions. I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of demonization on Putin, which is understandable. But we see what's happening in Ukraine with social media. We can actually be speaking to people, you know, as the bombs are, are landing on them. I mean, it's Never has that happened so much as right now. And then the feelings are of outrage and understandable and the pain. And then we want to blame someone and make them less than human. And Putin's the person. But I don't think demonization works. Yes, his behavior is not okay. It's awful. But what are his needs? You know, what happened? I've decided that shame is a big thing of what happens in the world, you know, and. When shame gets triggered, people do all sorts of different things, you know, and they lose the dignity. And so any solution has got to not put Putin more in a corner where he's just fighting more and more. We have to work with people. I'm not a negotiator on the world scale, but I would think that it would need very skilled people to come in and give even Putin a safe place to share how he feels and what he needs. Is that possible? I don't know. Now, I mean, there's many Ukrainians that have family in Russia and Russian Ukrainian, and they're yeah. all connected. And we've also had that in Europe as well, in the Balkans of families and in Rwanda yeah. families and neighbours, you know, like this has happened. And also in Northern Ireland to a certain extent as well. That healing, first of all, help for the trauma, all the children being traumatised. I mean, it's, it's huge. I don't think we can expect anyone to be part of reconciliation work when they're still in trauma. First of all, get everyone into a space where you know, they feel safe again. Because I think what happens in battle in war, and war is that they're not safe. You know, they lose it inside themselves. So we have to all feel safe physically, emotionally, even spiritually. I am safe. And then from there, I'm sure there'll be many programs to address the different needs of the victims, survivors, where of bodies, has practical needs like that. It's just so massive. I can't even begin to look at what is going to involve because we're still in it. But I certainly know that I'm dedicated to you know, doing what I can if it's appropriate. we need the world to stand with the people who be, who've been affected in Ukraine and in Russia, you know, and stand together in solidarity and support the healing. It's a huge job. Despite all of, of the difficult things we've talked about, I'm a great believer in the resilience, in the humanity of people in the world that we have. Just as we can do dreadful things to each other, we can also do amazing things to each other. And every time We're kind. Every time we reach out to someone to say, how are you? I care. We're making a difference. It doesn't have to be on the big stage. It can be in our community to take care of someone and to listen, to witness. And I have great faith that we can create a more beautiful, just, peaceful future because of the power of love and connection.
1: Thank you very much. In today's much. program, Joe told me about the conditions that made an encounter with Patrick McGee possible and mentioned things like the then existing peace process, risk assessment, humanization, and empathy. She also mentioned the sense of betrayal she felt inside and how she coped with it. She described all this as a personal journey. So she did not have a recipe for anyone who wanted to engage in something like this. We also discussed how other conflicts in the world, like in Turkey or Ukraine, can be resolved. And she mentioned storytelling. And she underlined the importance of safe spaces and trauma work. She also talked about overcoming shame. So, What strikes me after all these episodes involving these amazing speakers is that in the UK, there is the presence of so many excellent mediators and peacemakers who understand what conflict is about and what is needed for healing and then negotiating, etc. Yet, the government is not tapping on all of this experience. It really beats me. So I hope you enjoy the program. I will upload a picture of Joe in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I will also share some excerpts from the episode in Instagram stories. As always, I would like to close by thanking musician Imre Hadi and artist Serang Goktan, who allowed me to use their materials in the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next program we can find a way. Idil Elverich presented.